we're continuing a series this morning uh, called Essential Jesus. And in this series, we're really looking at all of these seeming paradoxes or tensions, uh, seemingly contradictory truths that exist uh, forever in the person of Jesus. Because Jesus is a, a confounding and mysterious person in whom we find lots of different things that seem to be opposed, but he seems to kind of walk this line, walk this tightrope, if you will, perfectly in balancing these things or in holding these things in tension. And the idea here is just really to lead us uh, over the course of several weeks to, to meditate on how essential the experience of living in that tension is to the narrow way of following Jesus. And so we've looked at a few different things. We've looked at how uh, Jesus is fully God and fully man. We've looked at how Jesus is uh, both obedient uh, and a leader. We've looked at how um, Jesus is very powerful and also completely nonviolent and gentle. And so uh, today we're really looking at this idea of, of Jesus being a devout revolutionary and this is, I think, very kind of timely uh, for us as a church, for many of the people who are going through life experiences and who know people who are going through life experiences, and just kind of in our culture and in our, in our moment in history, in American history, and in particularly in American church history, there's a lot of revelation happening right now, right? There's a lot of the veil being pulled back, and people are seeing things more clearly, kind of for what they are. Lots of scandals uncovered, lots of kind of compromise with uh, systems of power and all those kinds of things. And I think that we're seeing a lot of, you know, a lot of hypocrisy in the church, and we're seeing a lot of people uh, losing their religion, right? Like losing, losing faith because they see that it's not what it was claiming to be. They see that it's not what it has, uh, has you know, what, what it was supposed to be like. And the good news here, the gospel for us today, is that Jesus experienced that too, and he was able to experience that, uh, but still keep his connection with God alive, and still keep his reason for hope, and still keep his reason for uh, believing that there is something beyond our very limited life that is difficult, full of suffering and death and pain. Jesus had reasons to hope uh, that are eternal, that we can benefit from if we are willing to trust him and obey him. And so we're going to go through a series of uh, scriptures today, and we're going to do something a little different. First, I just want to kind of look at this idea and sort of like really, uh, really drive home sort of like the, the ethos of this sermon and why we're going to do what we're going to do. So if we look at Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, it says this, it said, Jesus said this, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, okay, and which Sermon on the Mount, that's kind of, that's like kind of in the middle of Jesus' method, message, right? This isn't like f- some kind of fringe, like side thing that he said. No, this is sort of like central to like the core of who Jesus is. He says this, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. And when he says the law or the prophets, he's referring to the five books of Moses and he's referring to the other writings in the scriptures or the Tanakh, if you will, like all the Hebrew Bible, right? 
So that's what he's talking about. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so, Lord, open our ears to hear this word from the Lord. The word of the Lord to us today is this. It's that Jesus did not rage quit religion. Though he was definitely angry at times, Jesus didn't abandon faith when he was angry. He went deeper. He got more serious. He dug into the scriptures more. He prayed more. He became more devout than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He found a connection with God that was challenging to the institutions of religion and the institutions of compromise with political power and the institutions of his day and all the hypocrisy that was just as present in Jesus' day as it is now. Jesus confronted those things and laid bare their ridiculousness, not by trashing his faith in God, but by committing deeper. He doubled down and became more devoted to God than the people who claimed to be leading in that area. He became more devoted to the scriptures than the people who, became, who claimed to be experts on the Bible. He became more devoted to God in giving and generosity and a radical commitment to solidarity and care for the poor than for the self-appointed dispensers of the resources in his day. Jesus was radical in his commitment to God, and it was from that place that he was able to effectively and with authority critique the religion of his day. And that is the proud tradition that all disciples of Jesus are called into. And it is that work of becoming more radical that we want to cultivate and enjoy as a church and to be challenged and to grow and to never give up our faith or our commitment to him and his commitment to changing us to reforming us, to critiquing us, to breaking our systems and reforming them in his image. We want to be people who are radical in our love and our devotion for Jesus. And so I want to lead us, actually, if I can, uh, through just an exercise this morning. Uh, Because I actually think that doing things... Uh, is more instructive and a better way for people to learn through experience rather than just hearing someone talk. And I want to kind of clarify and, and define my role as a pastor or as a leader or as a teacher or as someone who is trying to walk out a life that leads others to Jesus in some sort of professional capacity. Thank you for paying me, by the way. Uh, the that my job is not to be like a priest or a mediator between you and God. 
my hope and my dream and my desire, despite the, the fact that I'm standing on this little 12-inch or whatever it is stage this morning, my, my job and my hope is to come to the table with you to not say that you have to go through me to get to God. But my hope and my desire is that my life is oriented in such a way that I am a guide on the side, that I am a sojourner with you walking on the path. Hopefully I have some kind of experience or uh, knowledge or something that I'm able to give that's helpful. I hope that's the case, and I really want to be that kind of a person, and I want to do what I do well as a professional uh, but, but I, my hope and my desire, and I think most really good pastors' hope and desire is that everybody gets to play. We are a priesthood of all believers. And you don't have to come to me, and you don't have to come to this church, and you don't have to come to the community to connect with God, though those things do happen, and that community is helpful, and I hope that I can still continue to have some kind of authority in your life and help you uh, connect with Jesus. I, it's my hope that I can be helpful in that. But I want to say, surpass me. Please, take a lap around me. Go faster than me. Don't let me or Kara or any person hold you back in your pursuit of God. Go for it. Go for your connection with Jesus. This movement that Jesus started 2,000 years ago is not dependent on the structures that we build. It is radically egalitarian, and it is radically decentralized. And the word of the Lord continues to speak through people in times and places that, hey, I'm just going to be humble and say, I can miss. And so we're going to do something today called Lectio Divina. Uh, Well, it's kind of like Lectio Divina. I don't know if what we're going to do today is exactly like on brand for whatever... Uh, Lectio Divina is. That's Lectio Divina. That's just a Latin phrase. It means divine reading. But the idea here is that we, we come to the Holy Scriptures, we come to the Word of God, and we let God speak to us through those Scriptures. That's really it. It shouldn't be too foreign of an idea. It's actually like a deeply kind of Protestant idea, if you will, that like you and the Bible can hear God's voice. Like that that shouldn't mesh. But there are critics of Lectio Divina. Some people get uncomfortable with this idea because it seems decentralized. It seems like this could be a way that heresy sprouts up and grows in the church because you're just kind of going with whoever, whoever's random interpretation. Somebody who doesn't know very much about history or doesn't know very much about the Bible could come to the Bible and they could say any kind of random crazy thing. And you, you have a lot of examples of that in human history. You have a lot of the examples of that in church history where people have taken the scriptures and abused them and twisted them the same way that Satan twisted and contorted the Scriptures to try to get Jesus to do something that was against the will of God, we should be wary of that. We should be careful of that. And so I really, I understand the criticisms of Lectio Divina or divine reading of Scripture. And I just want to say that because we are going to practice this, uh, because we're going to kind of do an exercise where we try to hear God's voice through the Bible today, that isn't saying that church tradition has no place. That's not saying that scholarship doesn't have any place. That's, that we're not saying that you shouldn't do serious academic study of the Bible to know 
what it's saying. This isn't, a, this isn't an either or, it's a both and. And so, you know, Jesus himself practiced serious study of the scriptures. He was well-versed. He knew the scriptures better than the teachers of the law and the scribes and the Pharisees of his day. And they could not out-Bible him, right? And so we want to be the same kind of people. We want to be the people who take the scriptures really seriously. And we want to follow that principle that the, the scriptures can never mean to us today what they could never mean to the people to whom they were originally penned. That's a really solid principle. If you're reading the Bible and it is super, super, like, like it would be, your interpretation would be unintelligible to the people to whom the scripture was originally written, we're probably off base. We probably need to do some deeper study. We probably need to read the scriptures in concert with the rest of the scriptures. We probably need to understand a little bit about the historical context. We need to really dig in and do our study work to really understand the scriptures. That's a good principle, and I in no way want to negate that serious academic study of the Bible today. But what we're about to do is we're we're about to ask the Holy Spirit, who is truly the author of the scriptures, to speak to us. That's what we're going to try to do this morning. And what we're going to do is we're going to kind of read this story, the same story, in all four Gospels. And we want to take some time after each reading, just in silence, to reflect on what is God saying to us as individuals? Like, what is the Holy Spirit speaking to you directly through those scriptures as we read them? And I think that the Lord is going to say some things that are going to be powerful, maybe even life-altering or really impactful and meaningful today through that experience. John Wimber used to say that the Bible is the menu, not the meal. The Bible kind of tells you what's what your, what your course options are, right? Like, you know, you got salad or steak or you know, whatever. But like the menu and the meal are different things. And so when we come to the scriptures, we want the meal. And the meal is the word of God. Jesus is the word of God, the incarnate word of the Father who became a human being, who died on the cross and who resurrected and ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and who sends the Holy Spirit into his church so that we can hear his words, speak his words, and do his works in his name. And it's that Holy Spirit that we need to hear and encounter when we look at the Word of God. And that is what I'm hoping that we will get some experience in doing this morning. And so if you have a paper Bible or a digital Bible or whatever, we're going to go kind of like a little bit weird out of order because the Luke version is so short. So we're going to go Matthew, Luke, Mark, John. I know that it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in the order in your paper Bible, but uh, we're going to kind of go in that order, and we're going to just read different versions of the story. You can just follow along on the slide. If you want to look at your own version, you can look at your own version. But we want to hear God speak to us through the Scriptures. And so I'm just going to pray once again, and then we're going to start in Matthew 21. So, Lord, just by your Spirit, we ask that you would cancel the work of the enemy— that you would interrupt Satan's desire to confuse us, confound us, and drive us away from yourself, to twist these scriptures and to make them dead or uninteresting 
or somehow irrelevant to us. God, we invite your spirit to go before us to protect us, to wage war on our behalf, and to speak to us with your authority. God, would you speak to our hearts and put a fire in our bones? And would you ignite us to be devout, radical followers of you this morning? So let's go ahead and read the Word of God in Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17. It says this, that Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. He's actually quoting Isaiah in scripture when he says a den of robbers there. And the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple of courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, Lord, you have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Lord, would you speak to us now? So we're just going to take a moment or two of silence. Maybe just take a minute to reflect on what what God is saying to you when you read that scripture. Maybe write some things down. Just hear the voice of the Lord as we read this story. Next, we're going to look at Luke. Now, Matthew, in many people's minds, is probably one of the first gospel authors. It's kind of a contentious thing. Who wrote first? Was it Matthew or Mark? But you can kind of see how Luke is in very, in very many ways probably borrowing on Matthew or Mark's material here um, and doesn't say a whole lot more, but there are some subtle differences, and maybe the Lord wants to speak to us through those differences. So just as we read again, just invite you, to say, you know, Lord, what are you showing me here? What is 
for me, a word for me, or what is maybe a word for someone close to me as we look at this story again from another angle. So in Luke 19, verses 45 through 48, it says this, When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. God, speak to us. Let's take a look at Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 26. In Mark's telling, we get a little more of the context. You know, the, I, I should say that the context in Matthew and Luke is, and in really all of these tellings of the story, this happens after the triumphal entry. So this happens on kind of like Palm Sunday. Jesus is led into, the, into Jerusalem on a donkey. And just like Judas Maccabeus, he is led, he goes into Jerusalem and he cleanses the temple. And so... Uh, Mark tells a different version of this story, offering kind of a different perspective. In, in Mark 11, he says this. He says, Now the next day when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who had bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. 
For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have any, anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Lord, speak to us. Help us to hear your teaching. Help us to listen to you when, we say, when you say, have faith in God. Show us how you want us to do that, Lord. Finally, let's take a look at John. Now, John, I have to just give a little commentary here and say that John is a little different. You might notice that when we look at the number of the chapter here, that number is a lot earlier than the other chapters. In all of the what we call synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this story of Jesus cleansing the temple is put in more or less chronological order towards the end of those Gospels, so, you know, the later chapters of those Gospels. But in John, it appears in chapter 2. It actually also appears right after Jesus turns water into wine. So the preceding story is Jesus kind of celebrates this wedding and has this, you know, does this miracle, and it's this lavish, ridiculous, frivolous miracle, right? Like, he doesn't just turn water into wine. He turns it into really good wine and, like, way too much of it, right? Like, like five bathtubs full of really good wine. That's the kind of party that Jesus throws. And so Jesus does this miracle. It is the first of his signs. It's sort of like the moment when he starts to be revealed, when he starts to really move and act as though he is the Son of God and demonstrate the power of the Spirit and the authority of the Father on earth. And then John immediately connects that first sign to this scene. John says he started there, and then this is where he went. And he says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. 
To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he had, was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had, had spoken. Father, would you pour out your wisdom and your words? and your spirit on us. Would you speak to us, God? Couldn't ask for better sound effects today. I believe that God is speaking to us this morning, and we're going to meditate on what that means and maybe even take a risk and practice some of what that means. But I kind of just have a few other things that the Lord laid on my heart that I feel like I need to say. When we come to the scriptures and we look at Jesus and we really understand who he is, we will understand Jesus when we understand that Jesus is a rooted radical. Jesus is a rooted radical. And I want to say some more about what I mean by that. You know, this idea of roots and radicals, the etymology of those words is very connected. When we think of a radical person, uh, maybe we think like, this is just like a phrase that means like it was really cool, uh, like, you know, Cowabunga, Ninja Turtles, that was radical, you know, like you type radical on Facebook or type rad on Facebook, I think it makes like a little animation and the text turns pink and cool, that's great, you know, that's lots of fun and Jesus is definitely all that. Jesus is definitely radical in that sense. But, uh, but there's another way that we use this word and it's, uh, we talk about things, we hear about people becoming radicalized, Right? And there's a sense in which radicalism, or to be radical, is to be extreme. And so you could see, like, oh, if that's, if that's radical, that's extremely cool. Like, you can kind of see how it, it all makes sense and how it's all connected. You know, words are like buckets. We, we fill them and empty them with meaning. At different times and places, they mean different things. It's the nature of language. No one can tame the tongue. We need God to be able to help us to even understand each other, even when we speak the same language sometimes. But... But this idea that Jesus is radical, he's a rooted radical. And to be extreme is one meaning of radical. To be, uh, to be super cool is another meaning of radical. And Jesus is both of those things. But 
I really want to explore this idea that Jesus is really rooted, that he is really essential, that he is, in some sense, connected to the original source of all life and hope and grace and peace. And so maybe one way to understand this word radical, and what I mean when I say I want our church to be full of radical disciples of Jesus, is actually a connection to math. And I know there was just a collective groan. Someone felt a disturbance in the force. Some of you are questioning whether God is really here in this church or not because I'm bringing square roots into the, into the church building. But follow me here for a moment, okay? So like square roots are of, of perfect squares, Another word for that little symbol, that little checkmark symbol that you always see on any movie whenever they're doing any math that is meant to look intimidating and impressive, uh, another word for that symbol is, uh, is a, is, that's called the radical symbol. And so the radical of 49, radical 49 is 7 because the square root of 49 uh, is 7. Side math lesson here. Square roots, the way those work is with perfect squares, it's really nice because the numbers line up. Every, every number actually does have a root or a radical. You could find a number, the square root of any number. Um, you could find the square root of pi. You could find the square root of whatever. Many radicals are actually irrational numbers in that they are numbers that cannot be expressed as a ratio of two integers. We're getting deep in the weeds here. But what I'm trying to say is that with a square root... With a number like 36, if you imagine that you have a box or a square with an area inside of 36, then the reason that's called the square root is that if you were to take the length of one side of that square, that would be the square root because that number times itself equals 36. And it turns out that the square root of 36 is 6. If you have a a box that is six squares high and six squares wide, the root or the radical of that square is six, right? Radicals and roots. There's a connection here. And so if you want to get to, you know, the square root of one is one, the square root of four is two, the radical of nine is three, because three times three is nine. The root of nine is three. So you can kind of maybe start to get an idea of what I'm talking about with this idea that radical means root through this mathematical concept that you probably forgot or maybe never learned uh, because of our terrible mathematics education system in the United States. But, uh, but I'm just saying that understanding what I mean when we say we want radical followers of Jesus, we want to get to the root. We want to get to the essence. We want to get to the origin of who Jesus is. We want to hear that voice behind the scriptures. We want to get to the source. We want to get to those words that spoke life and creation and caused matter to exist. We want to connect with that. That's why we come back to the scriptures. That's why we come back to this, to, to prayer. That's why we come back to the life and mission, and purpose, and words of Jesus, because we believe that Jesus is the ultimate root of Jesse. We believe that he is the ultimate tap into the vein of God. We, we, un, we, we think that Jesus perfectly, and authoritatively, and finally reveals 
the God of Israel to the world, that he is the Israel as Israel should have been. He is humanity as humanity should have been, that he reveals God to humanity in a way that no other revelation or sign or wonder or dream or prophecy could because he is ultimately the voice behind all of those revelations and dreams and prophecies and that in studying and remembering his life and his words and his works, that we get to the root, we get to the origin, we get to the source of life and purpose and justice. And it is through him that we find revelation. And so when we come to critique institutions of power, the church being included in those institutions, the best and most meaningful critique, if we want to be radical, we want to be connected, if we want to be true, if we want to have integrity, if we want to be real, we do that through Jesus. We do that through seeing his words and his works. And I want to encourage us this morning and invite us to become people who are rooted radicals, who are rooted in the scriptures, who are rooted in prayer, and who obey the work of the Holy Spirit. I want you to be a student of scripture, please. Can I just beg you? Can I just ask you, please, study your Bible. And don't stop. When you think it's boring, keep trying. And I want to make permission, and I want to say something here. You know, you go through seasons in life where you just have more and less time. And so there are going to be seasons in life where you have more or less time for God. And many of us, I think, come into seasons where suddenly... Life has all kinds of demands that we did not anticipate. And I think particularly for people of my generation, we are woefully unprepared for the work of parenthood. Like, we just did not see this coming. We did not know that it was going to be this much lack of sleep, this much work, and this much just like, a, you know, just kind of like a destroying of who we used to be, <laughs> because now my whole life is suddenly oriented around this person who can't eat, sleep, poop, or hold their head up without my help, and I have to completely uh, just, you know, serve that, and it can be really difficult. It can be really uh, changing. You know, some, some people go through a similar transition when they're married. A lot of people struggle uh, in similar ways uh, with not being married or not having children or not having these dreams that they hoped and believed that they would have or in all kinds of other ways. And, or just life throws you a curveball. Difficulty happens and you find yourself with less time and less ability and less energy. And everybody goes through seasons like that. And I just want to say, in those times, that's when it's important to go through the motions that when we find ourselves in these dry places, when we go through a dark night of the soul or through an extremely busy time or a time when we're just not feeling it, that it's important to hang, that it's important to do the quiet time, that it's important to take 30 seconds and ask God to just show up in your life today or to take five minutes on a Bible app and read a psalm and call that your devotion to God for the day. Like, do something. Do what you can do. Jesus doesn't break a, a, a bent reed, and he doesn't snuff out a smoldering candle, and he is gentle and kind, and he understands, and he sees the woman who has nothing to give. She's got two pennies to scratch together. 
That's all she has in the world. She throws that in the offering box, and Jesus says that matters way more than all the expensive gifts that the rich people gave. Jesus sees the small sacrifice, and those small sacrifices matter. The, the, the thing that you're able to give to God, the attention and time that you're able to give to the Lord in the study of the Scriptures, it matters. And he sees that, and it is, it is beautiful, fragrant worship to him. That is a sacrifice acceptable to God. If you're in a season where it is just really hard for you to sit down and read the Bible or even listen to the Bible in a way that seems meaningfully uh, engaging and that you get some kind of emotional boost from, I just want to encourage you, don't quit. Hang in there. Stick with it. Another wave of the Spirit will come. Another wave of connection with God will come if you persist, if you stick with it. God will meet you there in faithfulness. I believe that's true. I have that testimony in my own life, and I've heard that story over and over again with people who stuck with it. But if we throw our hands up in the air and say, this is too hard, I quit, you can't break the relationship that way and expect to keep getting. I would also say, if you have the time and the energy and the and the, well, I mean, there's just never been a time when it's actually been easier to study the Bible, especially if you're an English-speaking American with internet access. Like, there are so many free available tools to you to do a deep dive on whatever you want to geek out with the scriptures. Like, it has never been easier for you to really dig into any topic that you are interested in. And I want to encourage you, if you find yourself with time and energy to do that, go for it. Surpass me, please. Outpace me. Be radical in your study and your commitment and your love to the Scripture. I would love for people to study more than me. I would love for people to rebuke me because they have seen something in the Scriptures that I am missing. I would love for people to come to me and say, I was really studying the Scriptures, and I found this, and I feel like I have a word. And I believe that this morning the Holy Spirit is imparting to some people a desire and a call to preach God's Word. And I have the sense that, that God is just doing something. God wants to put something into people this morning. People are feeling a stirring in their hearts to really be called not to boast in their own understanding, but to put two feet on the ground and preach Jesus, his cross and his resurrection, to preach Christ crucified, foolishness to the Gentiles and unintelligible to the Jews, or something like that. I might have butchered that scripture. But be people who are called to study the Scripture. I believe that the Lord is calling some people to really dig into that today and maybe to go deeper and to become people who have words to give to our community and not just to our community, but to the community around us because we are looking and finding Jesus in the Scriptures. From that basis of the Scriptures and through learning to see what the voice of God is like as it's been recorded and looked back to and turned to again and again throughout the course of history, through every hypocritical age of the church, through the Crusades, through the Inquisition, through uh, all the ridiculousness in American church history and all of the terrible things that have happened throughout the ages, 
the study of the scriptures have continued to bring revival and, and, and centering and orthodoxy back when we find ourselves off course. And when the church has abandoned the scriptures, the church has lost it. But Jesus is right when he says to the Pharisees, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the voice of God. And when I am in error, it is because I do not know the scriptures or the voice of God. But by digging in, we can find a way to hear God's voice. And I believe that it's very important for us, if we're going to be radicals, to be people who are rooted in prayer, to be people who are the kind of people who experience a sort of deep conversational prayer with God, where we talk to God and God talks back. That we spend time doing what we did this morning, where we spend time with the scriptures as a, as a springboard or just, you know, however you can do it, to take time to stop talking, to turn off the other voices, to turn off the radio, to turn off Instagram, to turn off Twitter, and the, all of the things that want to scratch that itch in our ear and tell us what we want to hear, to turn those things off and to say, God, I want you to speak to me, and I'm listening. And we might have to wait. We might have to wait in silence for a while. But it has been my experience, it's my testimony, and it's been true throughout the ages. And I know a lot of stories of people in this church who've experienced it, and I know a lot of stories throughout church history of people who have experienced that God will talk back. His sheep know his voice. And they listen to him, and they follow him. And so we need to be people who are rooted in prayer. And then as we are rooted in the scriptures and as we are rooted in, in prayer, we can become people who obey the Spirit. We can become people who do the stuff. And we can walk that out in obedience and be willing to be as weird as Jesus while being completely faithful. And I think that this is, this is our heritage and our hope and what we are called to, particularly as a vineyard church, in the line of Lonnie Frisbee and John Wimber and Blaine Cook and all kinds of men and women who have come before us and who have heard the voice of God and been willing to speak what they heard and do what they saw the Father doing. And I believe that God wants to empower us to experience that and do that today in a spirit of humility, in understanding that we are kind of like those, kind of like those little pots over there. We are, we are broken vessels through whom God shines. That we have this treasure in jars of clay that God's light shines through us. And we come to God not as experts of the law, not with wisdom or wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And that power is a power of love. That power is a power that is built on love for sinful people. And we receive that love as sinners, and we give that love as sinners. He does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And when we yield to him and we obey him, that's where we find his lordship and kingship flowing through our life, bringing healing and wholeness 
and experience the power of the Holy Spirit and all the good things that we read about in these histories of revivals and that we read about in the scriptures, the church at its best has been a church that obeys the voice of God. But in order to do that, we have to be rooted. We have to be connected. We have to listen to him. And we want to practice that now. Would you stand up? We're going to take some time to pray for each other, and I want this to be as orderly as possible, but um, I just got a sense while I was preparing and while I was speaking that as we